Welcome back, Hustlers, to the 5AM Hustle Podcast. It's my pleasure to introduce Gerald Donaldson, 23-year-old tennis star who has reached a career-high ranking of 48 in the world. So, Jared, I'm going to let you give a little context to the listeners of who you are and what you do. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Jack. Um, so, as you uh, noted in the intro, uh, I'm a professional tennis player. Um, I reached a career high of 48 in the world two years ago, I guess, or two years ago, so in 2018, I believe, um, or even 2017, I'm not 100% sure. But turned pro, I'm 23 years old now. I turned pro when I was 17. Um, have been playing on tour basically since a little bit before then. Uh, probably, you know, started playing um, entry-level professional performance when I was 15, uh, 16, and um, steadily moved, moved up the ranks, uh, improved, and um, unfortunately, recently, for the past couple of years, I've been battling a little bit of injuries. Um, I've had two knee surgeries. The most recent one was seven weeks ago. Um, but, you know, other than that, looking forward to get backing out there and competing and um, surviving the quarantine, you know? Yeah, got it, got <laughs> As it. As we all are. So how did you first get introduced to the game of tennis? Well, I, you know, the, the, the short end of the story is when I was young, my mom would take my sister and I up to a country club. I grew up, we grew up in Rhode Island. Um, so during the summer, I was about four years old. We would go up to the country club and go to the pool and whatnot. And one day they had tennis courts there and they were, giving like tennis clinics um and one day i just wandered over to the tennis courts and they handed me a tennis racket and said you know go play and that's basically what i did for the next week and my mom you know kind of noticed that i was taking an interest in tennis and ever since then my parent and my parents you know got me involved more and more when they saw that i took a liking to it and ever since then they've been you know really supportive and in providing me the best um, training they possibly they possibly could provide, you know what I mean, through different coaches mm-hmm. and different means and so forth, and that's really how I how I got into tennis. So, did you play any other sports when you were growing up? Yeah, I played a lot of sports. I mean, I was I played pretty much any sport that you could possibly imagine. I played hockey, basketball, baseball, um, obviously tennis. Um, you know, I did karate. Um, uh, so basically, basically my parents, you know, got me into a lot of different things, got me active. Um, the last sport that I, that I played was, uh, was baseball kind of, um, combined with other sports, you know what I mean? Like play the, 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 the recreational, you know, local baseball uh, league, but really what kind of drew me to tennis was the fact that it was an individual sport. Uh, my parents also played golf. My dad's original plan was he wanted me to be a golfer um, uh, because if I, if I played, then he could play. And my mom didn't like when well, my father just played by himself. So um, unfortunately, his plan didn't work out. But, um, um, but so I played a lot of different sports. And what drew me to tennis was it was individualized. Um, I didn't like the, the idea of relying on a, on a team, um, especially when you're young and kind of competitive and, um, you know, I felt like I gave up so much myself. Uh, and then when somebody wasn't taking it as seriously, um, I was 
I didn't understand that kind of, um, you know, relationship of not caring about the result, you know, to me, winning and losing was everything, the result meant everything. So tennis kind of allowed me to pursue a really, you know, competitive sport in individualized, in an individualized manner. So I, you know, got quote unquote, all the credit when I won, even though that's not entirely true, but I, you know, I, I received all the credit when I won and I only had myself to blame when I lost. And for me that, that, that was very, um, uh, that was very important or I don't know about important, but it, it allowed me to kind of be self, self-reliant and, um, you know, not have to rely on anybody, which I didn't like doing in, in the sports uh, arena. Yeah, it's, I think that's an, uh, an important point to make because a lot of people don't realize that, like, tennis, you're not even really allowed to talk to a coach, especially uh, when you're professional. And at that young age, like, I could see I, I was the same way. You get so frustrated when no one else cares as much as you, and it's just uh, a very frustrating situation. So, obviously, you have this competitive, you have this drive. Yeah, I mean, just – So, you have this competitive, you have this drive. Where did it initially come from? Where you were so ambitious? Um, I mean, I, I don't know if I can really pinpoint, you know, a, 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 an event that happened that made me really want to be, you know, competitive or, pers or pursue everything to the fullest. To me, it just never made sense, you know, just inherently. If I was going to do something, and when I do something, no matter what it is. I am shooting for, you know, to be, to be the best. I, you know, you figure out who is the best person in that field or in that arena, whatever it is, and you strive to be better than that. You know, I always had this kind of mantra that, you know, I, sh I shoot for the stars and if I miss, I land on, I land on the moon. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but basically, which, you know, obviously that's pretty self, uh, that's self-explanatory, but what, I, but that was really, you know, how I viewed life and especially how I viewed tennis, you know, that there was no, you know, there just doing okay wasn't really an option, even though if that's, if that was the end result, that was, you know, that was what it is, but I was going to give a hundred percent of myself to pursue it, um, you know, as best as I can. And my goal was always to be a professional, you know, tennis player when I decided to take that path, you know, so I would say just inherently, that was the way I kind of viewed, you know, sports, but also how I view life and so forth, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, the ability to become a professional tennis player, obviously it's like the 1% of the 1% of the 1%, but so many people don't understand that in the game of tennis, especially in America, usually the end goal is just to make it to college uh, because sure. it's so hard to make it because there's only so many professionals because it's an individual sport. And so just the ability to have the ambition to know that you want to go much farther than that uh, is very inspiring to say the least. Yeah, I mean, I think what you what you explained is exactly is exactly true, and I think that a lot, for a lot of sports, and I think it's 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 dual wielded. And what I mean by that is, um, one, a lot every every popular sport in the United States, whether it be football, basketball, um, hockey to a certain degree, um, they all baseball. Everybody goes and plays college before they go on to the perfect to their respective professional league if they get drafted or if they make it and in tennis and i think that the reason that is so is because college in those sports college provides the best uh, proving ground or probing ground for those young athletes to improve right so they have college for, in basketball you know college provides the best coaching the best probably training although maybe that's shifting a little bit with players now you know 
uh, joining the G, G, the G League um, instead of going to college for a year. But and I think what and, and in tennis that's not necessarily the case. The best players turn professional. Um, you know, in other countries, the idea of college is a lot different than in the United States. You know, they look at going to college as I go to college to study. I don't go to college to go play a sport. I don't go to college to, um, to, you know, be part of the community or the culture and so forth. So if they want to pursue tennis, they go and play professional tennis, you know, professional entry level professional tournaments. And henceforth, the best players are playing those tournaments. They're not going to college, if that makes sense. And I think that that is why, um, you know, a lot of the best tennis players don't go to college. But what I'll also say is that your, your second point is true in that that is kind of the goal. And, and, it's, and, there, and I think for a lot of people, the idea of playing professional tennis never crosses their mind. And I know for me, when I said that I wanted to be a professional tennis player, you know, nobody really took it seriously and thought that, no, you know, just go to school, just go to college, outside kind of other players playing tennis. You know what I mean? They, they, they wanted to go to school and they didn't really understand the idea of, of playing professional tennis because to them it was such a foreign idea. It was, you know, it seemed so out of reach. And I think that, you know, I think that that mindset of trying to be the best is, you know, it, it's, you go, you put yourself out on a limb and I think that, you know, that's what I did. And for me, it worked out, but obviously, you know, there's other people who it doesn't work out so much for. And, and I'm just speaking, it worked out relatively for me, you know? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I uh, found it's so fascinating when I was doing research and uh, looking into more about you is that you went to Argentina to train, which is so unique uh, as an American. Can you tell me what sparked that decision and why was the uh, decision to go there so great? Yeah. So I think, and I think that that is, so I'll start originally with why I decided to go there. So I think I originally mentioned I'm from New England or Rhode Island. And anybody who knows tennis knows that, or anyone who lives in the Northeast, I'm sure you're aware, Jack, of living Mm -hmm. in Illinois, that it's cold for a large part of the year. And the majority of tennis tournaments are played outside. And indoor lends itself to developing a certain style. Um, And that was especially true for me. I didn't move especially well when I was younger. Um, I hit the ball relatively flatter or straighter, you know, and that stuff doesn't lend it. That, that style lends itself to indoors, but it's not as beneficial when you go play at play outside or on slower courts or on clay. Um, and I you know, was playing in the uh, junior tournament, um, international junior tournament when I was 13 called the Eddie Herr and I lost. And then after the tournament, you know, I was kind of coaching, uh, after the first I lost in the first round and after the match you know I was kind of talking to my dad and my coach at the time or they were talking too and it was apparent that I needed to improve and that it was going to be difficult to kind of improve continuing to play six seven months of the year indoors so they started talking and and the answer was well why don't you go play on clay and so we looked at different areas. One was Spain, one was, you know, Florida a little bit, and then one was in Argentina. And we, I had a mutual connection to somebody in Argentina and the deciding factor was in Spain. I was going to go in the winter time. So I was leaving in January when I was, I just turned 14 and the deciding factor was in January in Spain. It's like 50 degrees 
And in January in Argentina, it's their summer, so it was 100 degrees, and training in 100-degree weather sounded a lot better than freezing in 50-degree weather, you know? So mm -hmm. um, decided to go and, you know, spent two and a half years there off and on, which was, you know, so great for my, for my tennis and was, was really what I needed um, at that point in my career. And I think, you know, just getting back to, to the earlier point about trying to play professional was down there, you know, everybody tries to go play professional. The end goal isn't to play college. The end goal is to play professional. And there in Argentina, where I lived in Buenos Aires, which is where a lot of, which is kind of like the Florida of tennis, but more condensed, meaning, you know, a lot of players moved to either Florida or California. I live in California now. In the United States, I'm talking, but in Argentina, everybody moves to Buenos Aires to play tennis. And I mean, everybody, guys from, you know, juniors who come from all over the country, all over Argentina, move to Buenos Aires because that's where the best players are, the best coaches. So there's just this huge ecosystem of tennis there. And it had a lot of great players and also guys trying to make it. So I was really inundated with, you know, this high, high level of tennis. And I got, to saw, I got to see, you know, firsthand what these professionals were doing, how they were training. So, um, you know, I think, and that's something that's pretty rare in the United States. So, for instance, you know, I never really saw a professional, you know, um, at, any, at any level in the United States when I was younger. And then I go to Argentina and I see guys from top 100 all the way from, you know, 1,000 in the world in a day. So, for me, that, that, was, that was, you know, really intoxicating to be around. And I think that I learned a lot from it. What's the, like, the cultural or, like, the kind of, like, the atmosphere difference between Argentina and uh, America? So I would say, first of all, I, the first is, is that players there, the end goal, which I mentioned earlier, isn't to go to school. You know, they're trying to play professional. And so in that, I think um, – kind of promotes a, a, a higher level of maturity to, towards the sport of tennis, meaning everybody's taking it more seriously, you know, because in effect, it's their job, you know, they're trying to make it. Where in the United States, you know, I think a lot of players try to, you know, make go to college, and it just didn't seem as serious. Um, you know, I don't think juniors worked as hard here from my experience, you know, not to speak for, you know, everyone or everyone I saw, but from my experience in general, you know, I didn't think guys took it as seriously here or, you know, trained as hard. But I also think it's because, you know, they, you don't know any better. So when you're around a certain, a certain work ethic, even if it's 50% of capacity, if all you're around is 50% of capacity, if you do 55%, it looks like you're training, you know, like an animal, you know, you're doing you know, 10% more than everybody else. And, but what, but in reality, it's not, you have nothing else to compare yourself to. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think in Argentina, I really saw, you know, hard work and not, and I think that that kind of lended itself to how I viewed tennis from when I was 14 and that it, they were, it was, they were good role models to kind of base your work ethic off your attitude off of. And, um, you know, for me, that was, that was great. So I would say that that was, those were the biggest, um, you know, and that's not to say everybody, you know, in Argentina took it super seriously or tried, you know, as hard as they could. That's obviously there's, there's different levels to everything. Right. But I'm just saying on the margin, that was what I experienced.
Got it. Got it. And when I was listening to a diff- different interview you were in, you were talking about how when you went to Argentina, you're really able to start looking and learning about the game of tennis, like learning yeah. how to construct points. How yeah. has being a student of the game really helped you in your tennis game? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that was also one of the reasons why I originally decided, or, you know, I originally decided, or my father and I, and my coach originally decided to go to Argentina was, you know, I, because down in Argentina, especially the clay is one of the slowest clays in the world. So you really have to be patient where compare that to indoors. It's really fast. You can hit a, a really great shot and the point is over. We're on clay you might have hit five shots and the, the, the point still isn't over. You know what I mean? So you really, really, you really have to lend yourself. It really lends itself to being patient to, um, you know, opening up the court, improved accuracy um, and other kind of necessities that aren't, that aren't apparent playing on hard court, you know? So for instance, I think, you know, you know, moving the ball around the court, um, and not trying to end the point in one shot, but, but being patient, but also aggressive to say, Hey, you know, I can hit three great shots to win the point. I don't just need, I don't just need to take the risk to hit one shot, you know, mm-hmm. um, playing with margin, having good net clearance, um, on my, on my ground strokes and so forth. Um, but that's what I needed. I always caution people because I think that that's what I needed in my tennis game. There are other players who already do all those things. Great. And playing in Argentina or playing on clay wouldn't necessarily help them because they already have that. And, you know, if you go talk to somebody in Argentina, the problem that, that players have down there is they're too patient. They don't, they rely too much on movement and they don't hit the ball big enough, relatively speaking, you know, Um, because there down in Argentina, that really works because you can run all day. You can get to all the balls um, because it's a slower surface and they struggle with guys hitting the ball real, really aggressively, you know? Um, so there's always a balance, right. And it's about, and, and for me, that's why it was so good because I, I had experience on the faster end of the spectrum in terms of indoor tennis playing in new England. And then I also got a taste of playing, um, uh, playing on slower clay courts in Argentina. And just to give a quick story or reference. So the first day I was down there, I was playing points. And I had never experienced courts this slow. And I got off the court. I was really frazzled, you know. And I told my dad, oh, my gosh, it's so slow. I just feel like I need to hit a drop shot in every point to win the point, you know, because it was unbelievable. I had just never experienced it. And, you know, so then extrapolate that out of day one feeling that you need to hit a drop shot every point to then two and a half years later, you know, being not feeling like you need to hit a drop shot in every point, you know, and kind of – and being able to work the point, as they say in tennis, you know, just some tennis lingo or whatever. And that, um, and that was, and that's what I, what I, what I, what I gleaned from it. And that was really beneficial for me. Awesome. So I feel like something that usually every athlete goes through a point of time is some sort of doubt or some sort of where they feel a little mentally down about themselves in their game. I remember mentioning you, uh, hearing you mention that you kind of had this time uh, when you came back to the U.S., how did you really get yeah. through it, and what was going through your head during that time? Uh, yeah, I mean, so for me, again, kind of a real, and you know, I guess my story is probably you know super unusual in the, in the fact that you know I stopped right before I had these huge successes. I stopped playing for like you know three and a half months, and 
really, I'll give you the whole kind of, I mean, I'll give you the, 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 the um, synopsis of it, which was, you know, I was 15. I went to go, I was still living in Argentina. I went to go play futures, which is, you know, for people who don't know, but futures are their entry level uh, professional tournaments, you know? And, um, you know, I was 15 and I was, I went to go play some tournaments and my, I qualified uh, for the tournament. Um, and uh, I ended up drawing the one seed who at the time was 280 in the world. Um, and there wasn't a huge expectation that I was going to win, but I ended up, I did win. And you know, which is a bit, I mean, for a tennis player, uh, obviously getting your first point, that's a huge deal. You know, I think for, you know, that's always a milestone, right? And it was really emotional and I felt really, you know, overcome with the feeling of accomplishment. And I was 15 at the time. And then, so I, and then I ended up losing in the quarterfinals. So I, and then I played a tournament the next weekend and, and in the first round I drew he, this guy, Mateo Martinez, who at the time was 500 in the world, but he was also, I think, four or five in the world ITF in the juniors. And I ended up winning that match. So um, in three sets. So I really had a great, you know, first two events in, in, in professional tennis. And I came home and I had a ranking. And I was, you know, I, uh, the second, I had just turned 16. Um, my birthday was, was, was during the second week of the tournament. And now it felt like, wow, you know, 16 with four points, ranked 1,200 in the world. You know, that, 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 is, a, that is a really, you know, unusual, a really high-level high thing. You know, obviously there are people better than me, but I think at the time I was, you know, the youngest American that had points at the time. And, um, and in the world, too. I mean, I don't think there are many 16-year-olds that had points. But anyways, um, I went and I played a junior tournament called the Eddie Herr, actually, <laughs> again, uh, so it all circles back to Eddie Herr. And I had really, in the 18s and juniors, and I had really high expectations for myself because I felt like, okay, I'm playing really good. This is going to be, you know, I have a chance to win this tournament. And, you know, I felt like I should. I felt like I was one of the better players. And I didn't. And I lost in the second round. And that was a really big letdown for me because I kind of felt like it was very disappointing, you know, the, the theory of expectations, right? Mm -hmm. Or the loss of expectations. So then, you know, go to Eddie Herr, or excuse me, the Orange Bowl, and I play this player, Christian Green, who now is like top 30 in the world, but at the time he was probably one of the best juniors my age, and I lost, and I lost badly. It wasn't even close, and it was so deflating for me because I felt like I really was this great player, and it didn't materialize at all in these junior events, you know, and it was a big letdown. And then at that point, I kind of, you know, reevaluated what I was sacrificing, you know, and, and I went back to Argentina after Christmas um, and it just wasn't the same. I wasn't, I, I, I was getting really frustrated with myself. You know, I, I could just, I just, you know, inside I knew that I didn't, I, I didn't, honestly, what happened was I didn't really believe that I could be, that I was going to be a professional anymore or achieve a high level in professional tennis. I guess you could say I was professional or whatnot, but that I was going to achieve a high level in professional tennis because here I was, you know, thinking I was this great player and, you know, getting mopped up or by these guys better than me. So I ended up playing some more junior tournaments, um, you know, high level junior tournaments. And I lost and didn't perform well. And, you know, it was a frustrating time, I think, for me, for my father, for my coach. 
and after one match i told after you know my match i, I lost in three sets to you know this this uh kid uh himeo Jimenez, i think his name was in uh you know a grade two itf which is one of the bigger itfs and i told my dad i said you know dad i I think I want to go home. I think I kind of want to reevaluate, you know, my commitment to tennis and so forth. And he was understanding and he said, okay, you know, I, I understand, you know, that's, you know, and I talked to my coach who at the time I was working with Argentina, I'd been with him for three years. And I said, Hey, you know, Pablo's in Pablo Bianchi. And I said, you know, Pablo, I think I need to go back to um, United States. And I think I need to, you know, reevaluate my commitment to tennis and so forth. And he said, fine, you know, I understand you've been down here for a long time and, you know, obviously it's, it's been difficult because, you know, I was in Argentina. I didn't speak Spanish. I didn't speak the language. I was there with my father, you know, and, um, but he said, you know, don't give up. And, and I, you know, I think you just need a break, but I was fully, I fully thought done with tennis, going back to school. I was homeschooled all the time, going back to regular high school, going to college, you know, like play a little bit of tennis, you know, play, 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 play college and tennis, but it wasn't like my, my focus was shift was going to shift from at to education from tennis, from tennis being the main priority, you know, but anyways, um, and then three months kind of passed and I was really not doing anything and meaning, you know, I was doing homeschool and I was visiting uh, high schools and stuff, but I really didn't have a purpose in life, you know, tennis had been my purpose since I was five years old and now I had nothing. And I was just, you know, kind of like wasting away. And I told my dad after three months, I said, you know, dad, I really think that I wanna, you know, play tennis again or try because, you know, I just feel like I don't have any, I don't feel any sense of purpose in, in life anymore. You know, I'm not achieving, I'm not, you know, there. I don't wake up in the morning and say, I need to go achieve this, right? And he said, okay. And so then I started playing, um, you know, entry level professional tournaments again, having relative success and, you know, realize, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to trying to play and so forth. And then I had a really great result, um, at Kalamazoo and I reached the finals with Kalamazoo was, you know, a, um, the biggest, uh, tournament for juniors in the United States. And I reached the finals as a 16 year old in the 18s, which was, you know, a really great result. And then, you know, that, that kind of, um, you know, one thing led to another and here I am, but I think that that is, but I think, you know, you're right. It all stemmed from a doubt, um, that, that I wasn't going to be able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish, which is, you know, difficult to accept. And, and the one thing I'll also mention is I think the thing that I made a mistake of, and I think many players or many people, players make a mistake of is you compare yourself to somebody else, you know, and, I think tennis players do this all the time where, you know, you check the rankings, you check, Oh, what is so-and-so doing? And, you know, I was definitely feeling that, that my peers were having these great, you know, successes and results and, and tournaments. And, you know, I wanted that. And I think I forgot that, you know, everybody's on their own journey and everybody is, you know, blo you know, blossoms at different times or has successes at different times. But at the end of the day, you know, you can only take care of yourself. And you, I put un, unneeded pressure on, on myself by comparing myself to other players and other people and what they were doing where, you know, when I stopped and kind of came back after those, after that three month break, I just focused on, on myself and I didn't really care or worry about what other people were doing. And I think that that, and that I think was a really, you know, really helped me, you know, take pressure off myself. Yeah. Awesome. You also talked about how 
um, when you went through that initial time, you started to get very frustrated and get down yourself. It's very easy as a tennis player, obviously, to do that because you're by yourself and all yep. the pressure and expectation is on you. Uh, do you have like a routine or a mindset or like anything you tell yourself in order to stay positive uh, during a match or practice? So I am a huge believer in the power of positive thinking. And, um, but I, I will say I didn't, I didn't contextualize it until I moved out to California. So after, um, so my next coach kind of in, in between, I worked with this guy, Alejandro Cohn, but also when I was 17, I moved out to California and started working with a formal, a former, uh, uh, player who was coaching me, Taylor Dent, who was 21 in the world. He had an academy out here and I, I, I came out here to work with him and he always said, you know, control what you can control. And you think and you say, okay, well, you know, I can control pretty much everything, right? But the, he said, you know, no, that's not true. You can, can only control in tennis three things. You can control your attitude. You can control how, your movement, you know, how aggressive you are in your movement. And in ten, this is going to be t- some more tennis lingo, but you can control your racket head speed. And at first when he said, I said, what, Taylor, that's stupid. I can control, you know, I can control so much more than that. And I can control whether or not I win or lose and whether or not I make the shot or miss a shot. And he said, he said, okay, so then why haven't you won every match? Do you want to lose? And I said, and that was very, that was the realization when he said that, because at the end of the day, no, you can't control whether or not you win or lose. Because if you could, you would win every match. Everybody would win every match. You know, you can't control whether or not you make every shot. Because otherwise you would. That doesn't mean take it for granted or not care or not try to or not try to you know figure out why you didn't make the shot or why you lost. But w- what it means is you know a successful match is when you had the best attitude you could because you can 100% control that. When you had the best racket speed you could because you can 100% control that. And when you have um, when you have the best movement you can, because you can 100% control that, how intense your movement is, you know? And if you do those three things, that's a successful match, whether or not you won or lost. So I always equate it back to, you know, control what you can control. And that really relieves pressure from you. Because if you say, hey, you know, how, and obviously that doesn't, that doesn't eliminate it. I still get angry if I miss a shot. I still, you know, get up, get upset when I lose. But I think just putting it in perspective, it, it, and for me that that really helped. And then, you know, other, other things that I would do, you know, I would always say in between points, you know, just repeat to myself, you can do it. You can do it. You know, I can win, I can win. And, you know, for me that, 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 that really helped me, you know, and that doesn't mean I'm perfect at it. Um, but I think just putting it, putting, putting that mindset into perspective of control what you can control, um, you know, worked for me. And I think it's, it's important to realize how much is out of your control. And I think that that's the big realization is not what you can control, but how much is actually out of your control. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, one thing that my coach used to always say is that thing about the best match you ever played and you probably had a positive attitude. You weren't like getting mad. You weren't really mad at yourself. You weren't throwing your rack. You weren't negative. You're, you're probably having a good time and uh, doing all the things that you were saying. Exactly. That's exactly true also. So I think one of the cool, more cool things that you've done is that you actually were able to train with Federer in Dubai. So how did that initially come to be? So um, I had just turned 17 and um, I was, I just started working with Taylor and I get a call. We, my father gets a call from USTA and says, you know, there's an opportunity, you know, 
Federer is looking for, you know, two juniors to train with. And there's an opportunity for Jared and another junior in the United States to go to Dubai and train for them for the month of, of December. And it was like, awesome, you know, great, sign, you know, sign me up. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going with the player I had actually lost to in the finals of Kalamazoo that year. His name was Colin. Um, Colin was there for, I think, two and a half weeks. I was there for three and a half, uh, four weeks. And it was, at the time, you know, a great experience because I was 17 and I was, and I really got to saw, got to see what Federer was, was working on. And it was interesting because the things that he was working on or he really um, prioritized were the same things that Taylor, who I went with, was telling me. And originally I had just, you know, planned to go out and work on my serve with Taylor. And, and you know, Taylor told my father and my dad, you know, there's a lot more that I can help Jared with than just his serve. And, you know, I, you know, I think whenever you start a new relationship with a coach, you kind of question, oh, you know, is he, is what he's saying, you know, correct is, you know, does he really know what he's talking about? Cause a lot of the stuff I had never heard before what Taylor was saying. So it was all new to me. And then Federer, when I was there was doing the same things that Taylor was telling me. And I, you know, that was a huge realization about, wow. You know, I, so then I bought into, you know, a lot of what Taylor said a hundred percent. And that was really the biggest thing that I took out of it. You know, obviously hitting with him was great and, you know, talking to him and stuff, but that right there crystallized my path in tennis and what I was going to work on, you know, because Mm -hmm. uh, just to put in perspective, you know, Taylor was really big into accuracy and opening up the court. And that is exactly what Federer was really working on and practicing and, and, and taking the ball early, which was another big thing that Taylor kind of um, promulgated and, and when Federer was doing that, I said, wow, that I got to do that, you know? And, and, and so it really made me buy in a Taylor hundred percent and, and buy in hundred percent of what I was working on. And, you know, for me, when I buy into something, I'm pretty stubborn, but I feel as though I'm pretty reasonable. If, if I, if you convince me of something, I will buy in 110%, um, as best as I can and work as hard as I can at it until somebody convinces me otherwise that that's not the path forward, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and that's kind of how, how it was. So that was what was really, what was really beneficial for, for me in that time period or in that, you know, training block. Um, You know, I could talk about, you know, how great Federer is and how awesome it was to hit with him and, and, you know, how, you know, he was my favorite player growing up and that was a dream come true. And I, you know, you always dream about hitting with or playing against a guy like that. But, um, and I'd watched him growing up, I think as we all have kind of playing in every big match and every grand slam, you know, so that was cool. But I think that is just, you know, that's almost a given, right. But I think the, you know, seeing how he was training and, and trying to work on the same things that he had done. And I think other, other cool thing was when I was, ta- when I was in Dubai talking with Taylor, he said, you know, this isn't, this isn't like, you know, he's obviously amazing and it's obviously the given, right? Federer is the greatest of all time, probably. But he said, you know, this isn't something that is unachievable. And unfortunately I have yet to achieve it, <laughs> but I think what he was, what he's saying is true was that, you know, it's not unachievable. It's not like, you know, Federer was, was born with this unbelievable gift that can never be, you know, recreated. Obviously, he's an amazing tennis player and it's not like you can just train really hard and everyone will be Roger Federer, right? There's, 
Uh, I think, in, I think, you know, what I, there's an upper bound to everybody's talent level, right? Whatever, wherever that ceiling is, his ceiling is obviously so much higher than everybody else's, but it really gave me confidence that, you know, yes, I can do what he's doing, you know, how he's playing, what he's doing, you know, that I can do that. And it, it still instilled in me a sense of confidence also, um, you know, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still working towards achieving his level, which apparently was a lot more difficult than I, than I thought at the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Federer is the greatest of all time. So what was your schedule like with him? Cause I know obviously someone like him is probably very meticulous about um, how he trains and how he sets up his day. Yeah. So, you know, I've, and I'm not privy to everything, to everything. I can only, you know, share kind of what we did, but um, you know, he would, we would hit for about an hour and a half to two hours a day, depending on what he wanted. And we would always do two on ones. So, which is, you know, f- for those who don't know what two on ones are, you know, Federer would be the one on one side of the court and then myself. And most of the times it was Colin, although when he left a little early, another player would join in and I, I would be on half the court and the other player would be player would be on, on half the court. And that's really what we did for a large part of the time, you know, Federer working on, you know, we would move him. And what's great about two-on-ones is you, for the one, you hit a lot of balls and you get to move a lot. And the guys that are the two aren't going to miss a lot. And you can really work on opening up the court because each player is standing in the corner. So for a ball that would be out of reach, if you were just playing, if you were just hitting up the middle or, or, or playing with one guy on each side, now you can focus on playing a real point and having, and not having one guy run all over the place like a madman, you know? So that was really what he, what, what a lot of the drills we did, what we incorporated were two on ones and, and that sort of, uh, sort of thing. So, um, you know, and that, and that's, I think, you know, how a lot of players now, you know, myself included schedule a lot of their practices. We do two on ones and, and that sort of stuff. And I think that that's a great way to train. So did you, you get know? this, did you get to spend any time with Federer off the court? Uh, I mean, no, not, no. Not really? Not really. So let's talk about a little bit of how you kind of get ready for a match. So do you have some way that you prepare or mm-hmm. do you have a, something that you do before uh, each match day? What does it look like? So, you know, match day, wake up, um, you know, have breakfast and then, you know, go to the courts. And for me, I, I usually like to warm up for uh, warm up, meaning hit so you know schedule a 30 minute hit usually I like to hit with my coach before the match um about three hours before I think I'm going to play so a lot of times in tennis you usually have like a not before time which means you're not going to play before but you're you can play at that time or anytime thereafter so like you might be third on a court which which means you know you play on court 10 and there's a match that's usually in professional tennis most matches don't start until you know the first match starts at 11 o'clock in the morning and you might be third on but you're not before 12 which means there's no possible way you to play before 12 but you play anytime thereafter so it really makes scheduling and kind of when to warm up a little bit tricky right mm-hmm. um but normal so if i if match if i'm third on after 11 uh, i say okay you know give an hour and a half a match i'm most likely going to be on at two o'clock so i'll warm up at 11 um, you know, hit for 30 minutes, warming up means hit for 30 minutes, shower, eat lunch, and then really just wait until maybe I think the match is almost over. And then I go into the gym, get on the bike, 
um, do some footwork drills, warm up with some bands. And that's really, you know, what, what, what a lot of players, what every player does really, you know, that's kind of the day. And there's a lot, so there's a lot, but there's a lot of waiting around, you know, waiting for, um, um, you know, the ma your match to be played, you know, and it's, uh, it's, um, you know, it, it can be kind of stressful and kind of like, because, you know, what if a match goes really quick? What if a match goes really long? Then you've already eaten. And, you know, for me, for me, I have a sensitive stomach and a lot of players, you know, like to eat at a certain time before their match. And it's tough to really pin that down a lot of times. Um, so, but, you know, I think that that is really, you know, that that's what I do. Got it. So when you're in the match, obviously you don't have coaching and it's, you have to be making adjustments based on how the match plays out. So how do you keep yourself uh, mentally aware and to have the ability to see what you may need to change during a match? Yeah. I mean, so that's a good point. Uh, for those that don't know, there's no coaching in tennis, even though there there's coaching and the WTA, they do have kind of uh, you can call on your coach to the court, but in the ATP for men's tennis, there's, you know, no coaching or supposed to be no coaching allowed. Um, which I hope that they keep, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, incorporating more, uh, coaching into the sport or bringing coaches on to the sport. I like the fact that, you know, you're by yourself out there. I think it's real. It's something that's really unique about tennis. Um, I think that fans appreciate it, especially when they see it, you know, you don't realize that, you know, you could be out there on a tennis court with nobody, but your opponent the umpires and the ball people for four or five hours and there's no sport like it. Um, and I think when people really see that, they go, wow, that is, that is something really unique and that's really intense, you know? Um, and so I, I like the fact that there's no coaching in tennis. I think that that's great because it's true mono mono, you know? And so to, to answer your, your original question, I think the fact is, is experience is a great teacher. So the more matches you play, um, the better you get at it, right? You understand how kind of, if I could, you know, try to speak clearly, you understand what you're doing well and what you're not doing well and what your opponent is doing well and what your opponent's not doing well. And I think when you get down to it, tennis is a very simple sport. You just statistically, so, so to speak. It all comes down to your second serve win percentage and how good you are on break points because, and obviously there's a whole, there's a whole variable of that. Right. But, um, you know, for on average tour averages, you're, you're going to win about 50% of your second serve points. Your first serve, most guys on tour have a great first serve. You're going to win, you know, high seventies, 80% of first serve points. And that's, that's usually a given. And if you do worse than that, it's going to be tough for you to win, you know, mm -hmm. um, unless you have a high first serve percentage. There, there's so much, there's other things that go into it, but, but really what I try to look at is, you know, how can I be really Because if you get a second serve opportunity, that is you, you know, you have 50%, you basically a coin flip to win that point statistically on tour, but how, what can I do to give, And that's kind of, and then what can I do on my own second serve? You know, how does the guy return? Um, that's, that's really what I look at fundamentally, you know? Um, and then obviously there's the general stuff, you know, how, which you know kind of going in, 
you know, is his forehand better? Is his backhand better? Um, you know, how's his serve? Um, if I, you know, have to play defense, where do I want to play defense to defense, meaning I'm moving, I'm out of position. I'm just trying to stay in the point. But I think that, and then, and then also how much risk am I taking, which is a big one. Am I taking too much risk? Am I taking not enough risk? You know, finding the balance of how aggressive can I play without him being able to dictate on me and how, and how, you know, conservative do, what's the bait? Cause what's the base level of conservatism I can play to where I'm, I'm, he's not just hitting winners on me, you know, and how aggressive can I play without making a lot of unforced errors and just giving the match away? Because I think it's true. You know, I play, I play aggressive, but you know, the, the majority of your points you win are based off of unforced errors by your opponent and find and find that balance. And, and I think that that is one thing that all players, especially younger players struggle with is finding the balance between how aggressive do I need to be? And it changes for every opponent. When you play Federer, you have to be more aggressive than when you're playing someone who's not Roger Federer, right? It's just a given. Um, but, and that's what the best guys do is they have, they are, they're extremely aggressive, but they're also extremely consistent, which makes beating them really tough. <laughs> mm-hmm. So shifting a little bit um, into what's happened a little more recently uh, with your, your knee injuries and your knee surgeries. So how did the injury first happen and like what went through your head during that time? Um, so the injury happened. Uh, I was practicing at Wimbledon in 2018. Um, I was walking on the back of the court. It, so it, just a quick story kind of interesting I don't think a lot of people know it I didn't know it for the longest time and I was you know obviously in tennis but at Wimbledon you are not allowed to practice on the main courts which is unlike any other tournament every tournament you practice on the tournament court you know there's obviously a practice site but there's also the tournament site except you get one hour to practice on the tournament courts before Wimbledon so incidentally that was my one hour <laughs> practicing I was playing a practice set against another player and I just remember walking at the back of the court during the practice saying, oh, man, my knee's really bothering me. Don't remember a movement. Don't remember, you know, nothing like popped or clicked. I was just walking at the back of the court and just, you know, realizing, wow, my knee feels really, you know, bad. It's bothering me. You know, like this hot flashing, I, I, like a burning sensation is, what, is how is that's way I can describe it now. Um, didn't think anything of it, obviously. If, you know, you're an athlete, tennis player, I'm sure you know, you're always dealing with a little injury here or there, something's not 100% right, you know, you could probably count the times in your hand where you're, you know, feel 100% perfect. Um, so, you know, I traveled with a physio, I got treatment on it, and basically, but it was bothering me. Went out and played my first round match two days later, first set felt nothing, second set hurt a little bit, third set, um, you know, hurt a little bit more. Um, but I ended up winning great, you know, second round of Wimbledon, you know, awesome. Um, you know, and then I go and play that match in the second round and I was playing, um, uh, Sitsi pass and I was just, it, my knee was really bothering me. And I thought, wow, this is killing me anyways, you know, kind of thought, should I retire? Should I pull out? I was getting killed. I was down two sets to love. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to lose anyways. You know, I was playing third set, you know, I'm going to be out of here and, probably 30 minutes regardless when the won the third set won the fourth set um and you know 
through it like my knees like killing me it's like taped up all over the place it, you know i got to like retape like four times but adrenaline the whole thing the whole the whole nine yards um it ended up raining got dark there's no lights at wimbledon came back the next day ended up losing the fifth set um and then went back home and i had never dealt with an injury before so you know i took two weeks off and thought it got better went and tried to play some tournaments it got it ended up getting worse so then I said, okay, I'm just going to shut it down until I, it feels 100%. And tried to rehab it over the next eight months. At that point, after eight months, um, you know, I said, okay, I got to, I got to see if it's, if I can get, if, if it's 100% now, or you know, because it was kind of like still painful, and I wasn't really able to train as hard as I as I wanted to. But I thought, you know, now is not now or never, but I have to see if this is the path I need to continue taking, or I need to do something a little bit more invasive or. Um, um, go a different route tried to play two tournaments and really wasn't fulfilling you know like I you know I won a couple I won a match and lost some matches but after three tournaments I said dad you know I really need to figure something else because you know it just wasn't satisfying I wasn't able to train as hard um, I knew it was bothering me and it just wasn't fun you know if you have if you're used to doing for anything you know if you're not able to do something at 100 percent capacity in a competitive and i mean it's tough enough to be to try to win matches when you're 100 percent. never mind if you're feeling 70 percent. so anyways so last april i ended up having surgery on my knee um unfortunately it wasn't extreme it wasn't exactly successful <laughs> um so then seven weeks ago, I had another surgery and hopefully this is this one, you know, does the trick. Got it. So how you, obviously it's a very tough situation. You said you didn't have to go through injuries before. How are you able to like mentally overcome a situation like this? Yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, I, I, it's funny you, you know, I, I say that because I remember talking to a friend and he goes, you've never dealt with an injury before, huh? And I said, Nope. Haven't been hurt since I was 12 years old where I had to take six weeks off my shoulder, literally a month before this all happened. So, you know, like, I guess I deserve it. <laughs> um, you know, I should have knocked on wood or something, but um, for me, you know, again, like I said, kind of, I try to fill myself with other, with other, you know, activities through the day and try to, you know, focus on, on other things. I have other interests besides tennis um it's you know and i've always looked at tennis like i don't want it to define me as a person who i am my life um after tennis i always wanted to do something else that doesn't minimize tennis i'm just saying you know it's it, it it's it wasn't like you because know, i think that for a lot of people when you do something um and i know people who have gotten hurt in tennis and it's really difficult for them to kind of compartmentalize it and kind of detach themselves from tennis and which is you know a real thing right you pursue something for so long and it's you know taken away from you you know you know for me i can speak for myself you know no fault of my own i felt like i did everything right and now you know i'm just physically not able to play and which is frustrating if you think about it but also i have a lot of time to to do other things and pursue other things and also you know i want to get back and play but you know, there it's, there's a lot of great things. I don't need to travel all the time, obviously notwithstanding the coronavirus, which, you know, no tennis is going on anyways, but you know, you travel a lot. It's stressful. Um, so I, you know, I take a step back and I, I, you know, 
pursue other things and kind of broaden my horizon. Um, you know, I read a lot. Um, and, and I think though that if I'm able to get healthy again, it will be a great thing this, this time off because I've really been able to kind of, um, I'm blanking on the word, but I've really been able to tune for lack of a better term, my thinking to help to have a mature, a more mature thought process than when I played tennis. You know, I think, you know, a lot of times in athletics, you're emotional, emotions are high and you're not always hundred percent logical. And I think that, you know, now being able to kind of run through a lot of thought exercises and, and think about other things and kind of sit down and go and learn about other stuff and go, huh, that's how people in this field think about it. Um, you can you can develop a much more coherent and logical thought process, which I think is going to help me in tennis if I'm able to, able to get back. So, um, and if not, I mean, you know, there's obviously a real chance that maybe I don't get better, you know, and, and then I'll have to deal with, with the consequences of that and so forth. But, you know, for me, I, I just think for everybody, you know, it, I, and I was a hundred percent all in on tennis, but you have to realize that sometimes you have, sometimes it's, it's not in the cards, right? You don't make, I don't make the rules of my life. I'm dealt with, situ I'm given, I'm dealt situations every day and you have to make the most of it, you know? So hopefully I'm able to get back, but if I don't, I'll have to pursue something else. And, and, you know, I think as we were talking kind of Jack at the beginning of the conversation, whatever that is, if it's not tennis, it's a hundred percent all in for me. You know, I, that's, mm -hmm. that's not, that type of mentality isn't exclusive to tennis. It's, it's whatever I do, you know? So, but I'm not, I, that's just the side note. I'm fully expected to get to recover hundred percent if the surgery went well and hopefully I'll be back. But, um, so I'm looking, but, but either way, I'm looking forward to, to it. Awesome. And I think Donald, it's a very interesting thing because what you're almost describing, uh, your rehab and how you had to go do different things is kind of what people are, are going through right now with this quarantine. Sure, and a lot of people sure. are kind of taking it the wrong way and they're being lazy. They're not trying to be productive. You said you were reading people aren't doing that. They're not sure. finding ways to fill uh, the time productively. And I think everyone should take what uh, you did during your rehab as an example of what uh, people could do in order to help themselves be more productive during quarantine. And just to, and just to conceptualize that just a little bit without giving vague, you know, just reading. So I, I was talking with another, with actually, in, consequently, the same friend who I said I never got hurt with. Um, and he said, and, you know, I've always been kind of interested in business. And he said, you know, Jared, if you're interested in business, he's, he's, he's not uh, my contemporary. He's a little bit older than me. And he said, you know, Jared, if you're interested in business, you, know, you should take this course called, you know, Wall Street Prep. And what that is, and I said, oh, okay, I'll take it. So his son and myself, we both decided we're going to download the course and do it. And, um, you know, I ended up, I, I did it. And that was what I kind of focused on in my first rehab. And really what it is, is, you know, you can do different, but basically it's just, if you get hired by a, a company or an investment bank a corporate finance position you will they will pay for you to kind of run this course um or usually it's in person but to go for three days and kind of immerse yourself in excel and kind of how you model out different scenarios so i did that and now doing a a real estate course in the same kind of um vein as as the one as the wall street prep course i did but you know for me um 
that's that's what I did. And I think it's you know a great and that it doesn't need to be something like that. It could be whatever you know. But you know, for me, that that was really interesting and it preoccupied my time. And I also felt a sense of you know, as dumb as it sounds, you know, accomplishment, right? Because um, you know, I remember not when I when I originally stopped playing tennis, I didn't have that, and I was a huge. It was a huge waste of time um, because I wasn't. It was like I wasn't pursuing anything, and you really, it really contextualized for me what it was like to live without really a purpose, which was was off was you know terrible because um, it was just boring. I, it was like Groundhog Day. I woke up, I did the same thing. You know, there was nothing nothing get my blood pumping and and you know obviously this is a different level than tennis but it just is what it is right and i think we all need to find we all and i hope that's what i hope whatever it is you like whatever it is you enjoy you know immersing yourself in i hope we all find that for ourselves because that is awesome when you're able to really put your 100 percent behind behind something and and, and you enjoy it yeah, I totally agree. And you're, you keep proving uh, to me and to all the listeners that you, uh, you are a hundred percent in all in and anything and you exude excellence uh, in probably whatever you do, you put, you put a hundred percent into the real estate course, you put a hundred percent into the wall street course, because you realize that in the future you may need those skills uh, and those abilities. And it's just an example for anyone that's listening to understand that, uh, when you go in like that, it really shows that you could obviously you can become a professional tennis player. You become someone who is successful in real estate, successful in Wall Street. But you have to take those first steps uh, in getting to that level of mastery, like you have with tennis. And and I think just to put an emphasis on it, you know, I mean, relatively speaking, my career high was forty in the world. I think I would have been a lot higher had I been had I still been playing. Mm-hmm. You know, I was um, for people who don't know, I was. One there in the inaugural, you know, next generation ATP, which was you know the best um, eight player, the highest ranked eight players under twenty one. Um, you know, I was I was one of that group. Um, you know, I think three of them or four or five of those players have been top ten. Not saying I would have been top ten, but you know, I definitely think I had a shot to or have a shot even when I come back to really. You know, this isn't the end. I'm what I'm saying is this isn't the end of my tennis. But also, if I never get better than 48 if I come back and don't do as well as I as I had before do better I think that the result is not what matters because there's plenty of people who work really hard who maybe never end up as you know for myself I wanted to be number one in the world I want to win grand slams um but maybe that's not in the cards for me you know but that doesn't mean that um you know don't base the, the 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 result on the effort you put in is what I'm trying to say. You know, it's not a failure if I didn't end up achieving all that I wanted to achieve. It just is what it is. But I won't look, I won't look back and say, if only I did this, if only I did that. Are there things that I would change? Of course, but that's experience. And um, the only thing I can do is take that experience and apply it to, to moving forward, you know? Mm-hmm. And obviously everyone goes through roadblocks and just having that yours was going through a severe injury like this and other people go through many different types of things. But a lot of times people say this is when they grow the most, they're able to get the most experience that helps them uh, with their future endeavors, uh, especially. Yeah. I think that that's true, you know, and all we can do is just learn each and every day a new, uh, learn each and every day and apply that moving forward. Of course. So just curious, 
what is the timeline for you getting back? When do you expect to be uh, back playing 100% getting back into those tournaments? So, I mean, obviously, um, everything is up in the air, I think, with the mm-hmm. whole with the COVID-19 situation. Um, for me personally, I'm hoping to be playing by 2021, you know. So, get, um, you know, hope, hopefully start in Australia, which is where the tennis season normally starts. Who knows what it looks like coming back. But, you know, I'm looking forward to playing in 2021, and that's the goal. And can start training 100%, hopefully by September, you know, knock on wood. I've been down this road before. I thought I was going to be 100% last, uh, last September. But, you know, here we are. And, and, and um, that's when I hope to be able to, to compete and play play tournaments was um, January 2021. Awesome, awesome. And I just kind of want to pick your brain a little bit because obviously you are yeah. such a high-level athlete. <clears throat> so what tips can you give to whether it's, a tennis player or just an athlete in general to be able to increase their production and increase how much they improve in a given matter. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, a, I think that that's a great question because obviously we all want to improve in, in whatever we do. What I would say, what worked for me, I can, I'll share what, it, what worked for me and what didn't work for me. I think what worked for me was just, you have to buy into whatever it is you're doing and you have to have a plan and a purpose. So for me for a long, because I improved the most, honestly, when I bought in, I had a plan, I had a purpose and I, I took, I, I put things in perspective. So it can be, you can, at least in tennis, so speak from my experience, but you can get lost in there and, and just feel like you're hitting your head against the wall by doing the same thing every day because as as players in tennis know, it can be monotonous. You're doing the same drills. You're working on the same thing over and over and over. But I think that if you really buy in and really – and take measuring sticks, right? Like it could be a simple, you know, I don't know, that you're working on your consistency. And you say, hey, you know, I was a little bit more consistent today than I was yesterday. Or maybe I wasn't as consistent today as it was yesterday. But that's okay because I'm still working on it. And if, I, if I'm aware of it, you're improving automatically. because I can guarantee you before I started work, before I started working on something that I needed to improve, I wasn't even aware of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think, and I think that that is the most, for me, that, that was really successful. And I think what, what, what in a, in a weird way, and it's new, this is nuanced because if I compared myself too much to previous days, I would just get lost in the results of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I think so having the ability weird and nuanced, but having the ability to understand where you are in, in, in your improvement or what you're working on, but without extrapolating too far and getting so in the minutia of the, um, of, 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 of the, res, of the results of what you're doing, if that makes sense, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, yeah. And and I think why that's the case, because you can miss the forest for the trees, right? Um, and you can kind of get bored with it or, you know, feel like, oh my gosh, you know, this is ever going to end. So I think that that is really, I improved the most when I had a plan, when I could conceptualize it, when I could contextualize it. So I could speak it, I could understand really what I'm working for. And 
also being on the same page with the people that you're that you're working on it with right i mean for tennis players you, you know most of us have a coach we're doing drills with maybe another player or you know and our coach is watching and sometimes we're on different pages and really learning how to you know come to common ground because you know if he if my coach thinks i'm supposed to be working on one thing or supposed to be doing a certain drill one way and i think I'm supposed to be doing it a different way and working on a different thing, then you're, then there's going to be no cohesion, right? And it's just going to be a disaster and a waste of time. So really having the ability to speak to your coach or speak with the people you're working, you're working with and being on common ground that you're both on the same page of what we're supposed to accomplish today, what the goal is and, 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 and how I did today. And, and, and all, and also I think taught having that communication is so vital because I, I've made mistakes, I think, of not, you know, when I was playing, not kind of talking about what I was sensing or feeling during a match. And, and they, they saw one thing, but I felt something different, which I can give a great example. You know, before I got hurt, um, I was, you know, really, I was giving up a lot of, on the deuce side, returning, I was giving up the out wide serve a lot. And I remember I played this one match against the Bautista Agut um, in uh, Madrid, which is one, uh, one of the biggest tournaments of the year. And, and I ended up losing in three sets. And, um, and I, came out, they, I came out the court and they said, you know, what, you gave up a lot, a lot of returns out wide or serves out wide. And, you know, you didn't return on the forehand that well because you were covering the tee. And I said, what? No, I didn't. He was serving tee on the deuce side so much more than he was serving wide. So they, so there was a great example of, okay. And it wasn't a personal fight. It wasn't like, you know, I had to be right or they had to be wrong. I, it was just what I was feeling. So what did we do? We went back and watched the match and I was hundred percent wrong. And I said, wow, you know, he did serve a lot more out wide. Like it was crazy. It was unbelievable, honestly, to me that he served so much out wide compared to what I thought. Cause, and it was, it was like, you know, he served for the match, like six, 65% on the deuce side out wide compared to I thought he served more on the T um, and, and, and that's what we do. So I, you know, I watch, I rewatch a lot of my matches um, and if there's a disagreement, we just go back to the tape because the tape doesn't lie. And then it's not about someone being right or someone being wrong. It's just about, you know, how can we better improve the situation? Right. Awesome. Awesome. And one of the last things I want to ask you is that who is a coach or a mentor that you've had that has really given you a lasting impact? And what is one of those lessons that you could share? Um, so certainly, I mean, look, I've worked, I've been so lucky. I feel as though I really have been lucky with the people that I've, that I've experienced in my tennis, um, whether it be my first coach, Mario Jano, who I still talk to all the time. Uh, the coaches, the coach I had in Argentina, Pablo, who I still talk with, the co- another coach in Argentina, Alejandro Cohn, who I worked with for a year and a half, um, to Taylor, um, to most recently Jan Michael and, and even, and, and before I got hurt again, Robbie, uh, Ginepri, and I, and they, I mean, just amazing people, all of them. I don't have a negative thing to say about any one of them. Um, the one, and I've been extremely blessed because there are a lot of coaches that, um, I haven't, that, that, that aren't as good as, as, as them in terms of just quality of people, you know, and having the best interests of their player at heart. Um, so the, so, but, but one of them I already, I already mentioned, which was the control you can control. That was the biggest thing. Um, and, 
you know, let me, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, that has really, you know, epitomized my, my mental capacity for my, you know, mental understanding of tennis for the longest time. Um, and I, you know, I think that that, that, that is really the biggest, the biggest one. Um, and just also, I would say, you know, just have a, a competitive mindset. You know, every coach that I worked with was really big. I, and this is, I guess, transcends, but was really big into competing and fighting and giving your all. You know, every coach that I had, I think that was really an identity for them when they played. And that, that, and that, that passed down to me for certain. You know, I felt that, you know, one of my best attributes is my competitive spirit and my ability to compete. And, and I think all my coaches had had that and and, and I, I know they did and and they kind of passed that down to me and and or, or really you know made it a point that that was super important you know and I think when um when you when you're told and you believe that it's really important you uh, embody that so that is another thing I think that that is really important awesome like one, one thing that my uh coach used to say is he told me to fight like a dog and like yeah. never give up because if you're as long as you get into that mindset where you're just like all, you, all you're focused on is the match and you just kind of get down and dirty and, and you seem like nothing can get you unfocused, which is probably the best feeling in the world. Yeah, no doubt. That is 100% true. So I have uh, two final questions for you. And these are questions that I ask uh, every single guest. The first one being, what are two books, if you have any, that have really impacted your life? The first would for sure be Atlas Shrugged. Um, so I think we talked about earlier I mentioned, and I'm sure you probably experienced it, and probably everybody does, where, you know, you compare yourself to, um, to other people or other, play, you know, from, from my, other, but other people in general. And from a, from a professional standpoint, I'm not talking about, you know, like, a, you know, how successful, how much, you know, money they have or, you know, the keeping up in, with the Joneses type thing or what they have. I'm not talking about that. that. That doesn't apply to me, but I'm talking just professionally and, you know, how they're doing professionally, the results that they're having, the success of the failures. And that was, that's always really important for tennis players. You know, I'm sure it's important in a lot of fields of, you know, who's doing what and how and how well they're doing it. And you no, know, oh, he beat me. You know, I got to, you know, that's you know, devastating for me and whatnot because you think you're better, but, but there's a great line in the book and the book's unbelievable. I mean, if you haven't read it, I mean, it's a long book. It's, you know, it, it takes everybody a long time to read, but there's this great part in the book and where the characters talk about where there's these two insignificant characters, right? But they want to start a metal, uh, a steel company. And the main character talks to these two insignificant characters and says, and say, you know, why are you working for so-and-so, you know? And the biggest, the the one, another main character this is going to sound maybe stupid. I hope I sound coherent when I, or, you know, you can understand it, but another character is like this big steel tycoon and his name is Hank. And, and the insignificant characters say, well, why would I ever want, I appreciate, you know, the big steel tycoon and the big steel magnet and learning from him because that I, we appreciate him because it gives us something to strive for and it, we take in all that he has to offer and we want to be like him. So why would we ever want to, why we don't wish him any, any ill will because his success is our success because we can learn from it. And it was an interesting, it's, it was an interesting concept that I had never thought about. And that was really applicable to me. You know, I, in, instead of like, um, hating or begrudging these players who had, who were having so much success and I thought you know that's true you know I do appreciate it because it gives me something to strive for and 
not only that, but it gives you something to kind of learn from. And, and if you didn't have those, if it was easy and if you didn't have those kind of challenges, um, uh, you, you wouldn't, there would be no direction, you know? So, so that, that, that is just the, a part of the book that really spoke to me, but the whole book is unbelievable, you know, about, um, about kind of individualism and, and, you know, it's mostly about individualism, but this, a second book, um, that I'll say that was really, that I really enjoyed, I'll just go through it, um, go through my library quickly. Um, cause there's a lot, but I want to give something maybe a little bit different of a take. And I'll say a conflict of visions, um, by Thomas Sowell. It's a philosophical book. Um, it honestly, so it honestly talks about, it talks about two visions, namely the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision. And it's a political book, but it's a political book in the sense that it talks about the, the simplest idea of each political uh, train of thought. So what, what, how your outlook on human behavior and human life is will then reflect how you, how you think politically. And so just base case, how your vision of unchained human behavior is, is, you know, do you believe that life is na uh, nasty, Brutus and short, which is I think what Thomas Hobbes says, or do you think, you know, if we had no, that uh, uh, Rousseau, I'm not going to say it as eloquently as he did, said, no, life is wonderful, it's long, it's fulfilling, it's cheerful. If only we didn't have institutions in place, there would be no war, no um, famine, no, no hardships, which are really two drastically different, you know, ways to view human nature. If you, the one, nasty, brutish, and short, believes if you didn't have institutions in place, everybody would be at their throats. Humans are incapable of, of advancing any farther than they already are. They're, you know, inherently not evil, but inherently selfish and greedy and, 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 and will, will do whatever means it takes to take from the other person. You know, they don't have empathy or, they, you know, they, they, they might say they have empathy, but they don't. But when it comes down to it, they really don't because they can really only, they really only care for themselves. And the other, the other uh, theory is, no, humans inherently are selfless and they don't care about themselves and they want what's best for the, for, you know, your common man and their needs come second to that of society or, or what, other, what other people need. And it's a great book because it really is a great thought exercise and really tests your own beliefs, what you believe about human nature and what you believe politically and, you know, how that shapes up. And it's not a... Um, and, and the author does a great job. Thomas Sold does a great job of not, he doesn't pick a side. It's not like he's favorite to one side or, or, or in the book, you know, anyone who knows him knows his political beliefs, but in the book, he doesn't pick a side and he just lays out the facts of the, of the philosophical differences in thought, you know, and he says, look, a lot of times there's no agreement because they talk right past each other because they believe in different things. You know what I mean? Um, uh, they, they believe in different views of, of humanity, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I, to me that that was a really great book, you know, I, I devoured it. It's short. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's wordy, but 
I really liked it. And, and, and those are two books that I would say, you know, for me were, were really, um, were important because they changed how I thought. Awesome. Awesome. So the final question I have is if you can give one piece of advice to your teenage self, what would it be? My one advice to my teenage self would have, would have been, there's so much. <laughs> I, I would honestly say, you know, really focus on yourself and on your own journey and try to block out everything else that is going around you. And, 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 and because I would say, you know, for me, I really always, I, you know, looked at how are, how are their players doing? How are, um, you know, and how does that compare to me, what I'm doing? And, and, you know, that's just irrelevant. The bottom line is you just have to focus on what you're doing yourself, your improvement and not worry about anybody else. And the other thing that I would also say is, you know, make sure you understand being a lifelong learner. Um, it's something that, that when I was, when I went to school, our principal at the assemblies is always say, you know, lifelong learner, be a lifelong learner. We want to instill lifelong learners here. And I thought that was a dumb cliche, you know, some stupid thing that a, that a teacher said, you know, oh, lifelong, what is that? Um, but it's true. It honestly is true. And being a lifelong learner is applicable to everything and, and, and really take that to heart as, as well as um, focusing on, on yourself and, and realizing you're on your own journey. Everybody's on, on their own journey and nobody others, nobody else's journey is journey is better or worse. It, 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 it it's inherent, you know, that you're on your own journey and enjoy it. Awesome. That's amazing. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I'm sure the listeners, whether they understand tennis or they know, uh, if you are not, uh, gained a lot of knowledge, gained a lot of value from this interview. I appreciate again, you coming on, uh, to speak with me. So that's the, uh, that's the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening to the 5am hustle podcast as always. Peace.